Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. That's something else we have to be careful of. When God wants to reach out to and make a difference in someone's life, we need to make sure we don't become a roadblock to that, that we don't prejudge them as unworthy. Because if anyone would have been unworthy in their mind, it would have been this woman because every description of her says she's not someone who belongs with them. For the next two broadcasts, we're going to be finishing up Mark chapter 7 and moving into chapter 8 in a two-part message Pastor Sam has entitled, Words and Works. Here in part one, we're looking at a Greek woman who came to Jesus with a demon-possessed daughter. Before Jesus casts the demon out, though, he has something very interesting to say to the mother. So let's listen in. Mark 7, 24 to 8, 10, Words and Works. We look today at another desperate mom, this one with a demon-possessed daughter, a deaf man who struggles to speak, and then another group of hungry people fed completely, wondrously by the Lord for three days, but now in need of physical sustenance. We pick up in verse 24, read with me, from there he arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and wanted no one to know it, but he could not be hidden. For a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him, and she came and fell at his feet. The woman was Greek, Syrophoenician by birth, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. But Jesus said to her, let the little children or let the children be filled first. For it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord, even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, For this saying, go your way, the demon has gone out of your daughter. And when she had come to her house, she found the demon gone and her daughter lying on the bed. Earlier in our study of Mark, we cited Jesus' visit to Nazareth, where he goes into the synagogue in the city where he was best known, where he grew up, where he read his mission statement out of the book of Isaiah. It was Isaiah 61.1. I'll read you just part of it. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Jesus says, here's what I've come to do. Then he goes out and does exactly what he said he came to do. His words and his works matched perfectly. In our last study, the religious leaders of Israel, not all of them, but some of them had traveled all the way from Jerusalem to spend some time with Jesus. They find fault with his disciples, accusing them of eating with unwashed hands, defiled hands, and not according to the tradition of the elders. And Jesus says to them, well, quoting again from Isaiah, and this time it's Isaiah 29, 13. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. He called them hypocrites, posers, pretenders, 
play actors. And he says, though their words and their works matched as well, both were done to be seen of men, not to please the Lord, not to honor him, not to really touch those people, but they just wanted recognition. They just wanted notoriety. And they had all that. And Jesus was a great threat to both. Their words and their works aligned, but they were all for show. Some say, but never do. Those we call hypocrites. Some say and do. We call them faithful. Some hear and say and do. We call those Wise. Well, today we have two examples of faith in him leading to action on behalf of others. It's an important reminder, the ministry of intercession. And that's what they're doing, not just in prayer, but very practically and observably. They're coming to Jesus on behalf of another. And it's a great privilege to connect our hearts with our Lord's because you can be sure of this when you're praying for others. You're always connecting with the heart of God. Even at this moment, even to this day, Jesus is interceding for us. Seated at the right hand of the Father, we're in heaven, praying for you, for yours, for me, and for mine. Well, Jesus leaves for the Mediterranean cities of Tyre and Sidon. They're northwest from where he had been there in Galilee. And they're, of course, on the coast. Tyre, one of the more famous cities. Both are seaport cities. Both hosted great harbors. So lots of trade, seafaring people. And so uh, he goes up to Tyre first. They're in Lebanon today, by the way. They were, it was called Lebanon in, in 500 B.C., and, but it was a part of the Syrian uh, region. So it, it would be like a local part of something larger. And uh, it explains why this woman is identified as a Syrophoenician. She's from the Syrian portion of the Phoenician people. They're the seafaring people that settle in Sidon. They also settled in Libya down in the northern part of Africa. And so there are Syrophoenicians and Libyan Phoenicians. And, and so if, if you've wondered and you're probably like, eh, who cares? Well, maybe you do and maybe you don't. Pastors are famous for telling people things they don't care about or need to know. And I just want to be one of my peers. So uh, anyway, there's a long history with God's people and the city of Tyre. Um, actually, Tyre and Sidon, but, but Tyre specifically. Uh, Josiah led a great revival up there in the latter years prior to the, the captivity by the Babylonians. Jesus ministers there. We're going to see that today. Paul will later spend a week there ministering and sharing the gospel and, and building uh, the church it was the town of Hiram who was responsible for sending the cedars of Lebanon down to David when he built this palace and Solomon when he built the temple. It was the town of Jezebel. That makes these guys frenemies. We have Hiram, who's a real friend. We have Jezebel, who's a serious enemy. She marries Ahab and introduces Baal worship to the backsliding people of God. Tyre was actually two fortified cities. The first was on the mainland, 
And uh, it was a fortress itself, but the Babylonians uh, eventually conquered it and devastated and destroyed it. The Persians ruled over it, but they could never get to the second city. It was a half a mile off the coast. It was a fortress island, so it's both of them are called Tyre. But you have the one that was captured and destroyed. Then you have the one that couldn't be. At least they thought no one will ever take us out if the Babylonians couldn't do it and the Persians have no way to do it. Well, then Alexander the Great comes on the scene and he is able to do what none of them did. And what he did is he took all the rubble from the destruction of the city on the mainland and he built a causeway 200 to 300 yards wide through that half a mile space. And he was able to just walk his troops right in. And the people weren't well armored because they didn't need to be. They weren't really worried because they didn't think anyone could get to them. They had to have noticed the causeway, but there was nothing they could do to get away. Well, anyway, that brings us to verse 24. We read it. He arose, went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now you know a little bit about them. He enters a house and he didn't want anyone to know why. He's trying to spend some quiet time with his disciples. He wants to disciple his disciples. And at this point in his ministry, almost all of his time with them is public time because wherever he is, the people gather to him. They surround him. He will find a way to get away a bit after this scene, and we'll talk about it, but he's there specifically to have some downtime with his disciples. But he could not, we read, be hidden for a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit, heard about him. She came and fell at his feet. Matthew's gospel says she worshiped him there. And then it says, well, she was a Greek a Syrophoenician by birth, and she kept asking him, that word kept is so important, she asked him again and again and again, persevering in her, her prayer to him, please help me, please cast the demon out of my daughter. Well, her daughter's possessed, she's an outsider, a Gentile, a Greek, a Syrophoenician, a woman of Canaan, Matthew's gospel tells us. Yet she hears about Jesus. She comes to Jesus. She falls at his feet and begins to plead and won't stop until she gets an answer from him. She's a woman with everything against her. Still, she comes to him. She's a definite outsider, not a part of the covenant, not a part of the people of God. She didn't have all they had, the law and the prophets and the temple and the feast and the festivals. All she had was a hope in Jesus, having heard of Jesus, that he could and would do for her what no one else was able to do. So she comes to him. She pleads with him, set my daughter free. Well, Matthew also tells us, and, and the, the, the parallel passages are always worth spending time in, that the disciples urged him to send her away. I'll read this part. Because she cries out to us, they say. Send her away. This is their go-to response when anybody's in serious need and they come. 
They're like, you know what? She's got to go. Lord, just tell her to go home. Earlier when the 5,000 were hungry and, and, and they're like, Lord, we better send these people away. It's their go-to. And we're going to see Jesus do a little preemptive ministry uh, as we approach the third little part of our study today and, and see yet another great miracle. But Jesus' response to her, we read it, verse 27. Jesus said to her, let the children be filled first. That word first might not seem significant to you, but you can be sure it was to that mom. Because first suggests there'll be a second. First says there's hope. And so she comes, she lays her petition before him. The disciples say, get rid of her. He refuses to do that. She continues to plead. And then finally he speaks and he says, let the children be filled first. For it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Now, if this were today, Twitter would go crazy. Heartless Jesus refuses to help a hurting woman. Calls her little girl a dog. Listen, I like the New King James translation here because it says the little dogs. And it's actually softer than that. It's the little puppies. We're not to picture a dog. We're to picture a little puppy. And if you're like, well, how could he even call a, a, little, a little girl a little puppy or liken her to one? Well, the Jews considered Gentiles on the same par with dogs. They were unclean animals. In fact, the Jews used to pray, and not all of you will like this. They used to thank God that they, they weren't uh, a Gentile, that they weren't a woman. <laughs> and I can't remember the third one, but they had some real issues. Now, not all of them prayed that. Those religious leaders, though, that opposed Jesus, you can bet they were about that. So he says, let the children be filled first. Listen, dogs, again, diminutive here. And I like that New King James straightened out at least the part because Old King James, I think, just said dogs. Here it says little dogs. Little puppies would even soften it more. But here's the thing. The story doesn't end here. And, and oftentimes when people make accusations about the Bible, something Jesus did or didn't do, something Jesus said or they say he said, they grab a phrase and they build this case with it, much as our media is fond of doing today. You know, you can make what per a person said anything you want it to be if you take it out of context and ascribe evil motivation to it. And the religious leaders were doing that to Jesus, of course. So we need to be careful that we don't fall into that trap, that when we're reading the word or when people speak of the word and they say, well, you know, the Bible said this or the Bible says that. First of all, make sure that you know if that's in the Bible. And if not, just tell them lovingly, correcting those who oppose. Hey, that's not what the Bible says. That's not what Jesus said. That's not what he taught. So again, he doesn't stop here. So the question has to be, why did he refuse her? Only to meet the need later. Spoiler alert if you didn't read ahead. He's going to heal her daughter. He's going to cast out the demon. In fact, if you haven't noticed it yet, you should just read through all four Gospels. And you don't have to race through them, but don't get caught up in any of the details. Just read it for reading's sake. It's great reading. 
And what you'll notice is that no one ever came to Jesus with the need, petitioning him for help, where he turned them away. And no one ever came to Jesus demanding help. She came, as we all must, humbly, asking, pleading, begging, but not demanding anything of the Lord. I believe he hesitated because he couldn't, he could have in that moment said, hey, you've got it. Or I'll send one of my staff to handle it. Or, or you know, don't worry about it. I'll deal with it. But instead, he simply begins the conversation. He wanted to give her an opportunity, as he often does in the scriptures, to let her testify of her faith in him. Just her being there at his feet, worshiping him, pleading with him says a lot. But she's going to take it further and he wants to make sure his disciples, those in the house, the others who gathered in or are listening in from outside, that they all hear her testimony. He chooses to engage her so she can demonstrate that she believed God, in this case, Jesus, God the Son and the Son of God, was the solution to the problem and not someone to blame for it. And again, I hear that. I see it. My heart breaks for those who've gone through some crisis and it becomes not just the crisis of the loss of a child or the loss of a spouse or the loss of a parent or someone else they dearly love, but, but a loss of faith. They begin to, to question as unbelievers do, how could God let such a thing happen? In fact, you may have heard it, that, that some say, if God's good, he must not be all-powerful. Or if God's all-powerful, he must not be good. Well, listen, then they take it further. They, they're like, well, you know, I don't even think there is a God. The error of their position is rooted in the idea that God should do what we do if we were him. And the bottom line is this, we're not. He doesn't always do what we think he should do. In fact, oftentimes he does things that baffle me. But I never question his love. I never question his goodness. I never question his faithfulness or his promises. When we're faced with situations that are this far beyond us like hers, then it's just enough to say, Jesus, you're the, you're the answer. So please show yourself strong on my behalf. Those who fall into that trap end up accusing and blaming and condemning and defaming and slandering God or ultimately say, oh, I used to believe in him, but then this happened and I just can't believe in a God that would let something like that happen. Well, he lets the conversation continue. She testifies of her faith in him. I already mentioned it. Matthew says... She worshiped him. She doesn't seem insulted or act insulted. She doesn't seem wounded. She's not a victim. She's just someone with a need who comes to the one who can meet the need. And so his response, well, listen, he came for his own children. You should know this. He came to the Jew first. Paul will follow that same pattern. The disciples follow that same pattern. First times he sends them out, he says, go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
Later, he'll send them out into Gentile territory where it's going to be a lot of people that aren't from the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Paul always starts his ministry in the synagogue in any city he comes to. And then when they get upset with them because he starts teaching, you know, God doesn't just love Jews. He loves Gentiles, too. They throw him out of the synagogue. He goes down the street and, well, the work expands dramatically. And, and so here's what we need to know about our Lord is that that he started with his people because he came for them. They were expecting him. They had the law. They had the prophets. They had the promises. They knew Messiah was coming. So, of course, he goes to them first. But when he chose Israel, he chose them to reach the world, to be a light to the world for him. That was always in his mind. That was always his heart. So when people, as they do, say, well, how could God only choose Israel? He had to have someone to reach the world through. He couldn't just randomly, well, I guess he could have. Some of us would, because we're not real organized. Me personally. But uh, he, he couldn't just get a mob of people and say, go out there and change the world. Instead, he chooses 12 of his own, one of them a betrayer, 11 faithful but many of them troubled. And he uses them to take the message of the gospel to the entire world. And so here's the point in all of this, that he came unto his own, we read in John, but his own received him not, but as many as received them, to these he gave power to become the children of God, even to those who believe on his name. Jesus came for them first. And it's foolish for anyone to say, well, it's not fair that he chose the Jews. They were no one and nothing until he chose Abraham. They didn't even exist at that point. He made promises to Abraham. He fulfilled them in bringing a nation and a land and reciprocation and, and, and a mighty name and, and a Messiah. So all of that brings us to this. The, the point was, it was to the Jew first. And then to the Gentile, she seemed to be okay with that. And I love her response to this because she knows the puppies get the crumbs that fall from the children's table. We've all seen it. And my family, it was the crumbs and the vegetables. But, uh, you know, the kids are like, what's that? And they're like, you know, you've seen it. Well, she knows they get the crumbs, listen, during the meal, not after. Because he's saying the children must be fed first, first. But she, she's going to tell him. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. There was a never any doubt, by the way, that he was going to help her. The disciples might have doubted it. They even did what they could to hinder it, to stand in the way of it. That's something else we have to be careful of. When God wants to reach out to and make a difference in someone's life, we need to make sure we don't become a roadblock to that, that we don't prejudge them as unworthy. Because if anyone would have been unworthy in their mind, it would have been this woman, because every description of her says she's not someone who belongs with them. But Jesus isn't like that. He's like, okay, these are my guys. They're a mess. You're, you're actually pretty cool because she's believing in him. She's trusting in him. She's putting all of her hope in him. So he says to her, for this saying, go your way. The demon has gone out of your daughter. 
And when she'd come to her house, she found the demon gone out and her daughter lying on the bed. Prejudging individuals comes natural to us, especially when we see a person whose life is representative of the things that we left behind when Jesus came into our lives. It's so easy to try and avoid these types of people like their sin might rub off on us or something. Think of Mother Teresa's words when she said, I see Jesus in every human being. I say to myself, this is hungry Jesus, I must feed him. This is sick Jesus, this one has leprosy or gangrene, I must wash him and tend to him. I serve because I love Jesus. Jesus did feed the hungry and he healed the sick, but his primary mission was to free us from sin. So we should think of Mother Teresa's words when we see people whose lives are broken by sin. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.